0: Legalizefreedom.com. Greetings and welcome once again to legalizefreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Bernie Taylor who joins us to discuss his book, Before Orion, Finding the Face of the hero. The myth of the hero's journey is at the heart of folklore worldwide among the ancients, indigenous peoples past and present, and even in our modern society as metaphors, allegories, archetypes and symbols in popular culture. Before Orion explores a deeper root for this myth by looking at how hunter-gatherers viewed themselves within the natural and spiritual worlds. Taylor proposes that select cave paintings are fundamental pieces in the human journey to self-realization, the foundation of written language and a record of biological knowledge that irrevocably impacted some of the artistic styles, religious practices and stories that are still with us today. He addresses a profound elephant in the room by opening up uncharted places in our history, exploring ideas unacceptable to mainstream archaeology and anthropology. Although we have largely lost our fundamental connections to nature, our past, each other, and even ourselves, essentially we are the same as our ancient ancestors. Far from being redundant relics of a bygone age, their stories are vitally important in understanding who we are, where we come from, and where we are going. Hello Bernie, first of all, thank you so much for joining us today on legalizedfreedom.com. We're going to be discussing your work and research, which is largely condensed in your book Before Orion, Finding the Face of the Hero. Before we dive into that, just tell listeners a little bit about your background and your work in general.
1: This was not a first book. There was a book prior to this one and a lot of research and journal articles and things like that. And the book prior to this one is titled Biological Time, which explored how plants and animals are timed and how um, indigenous peoples and the ancients um, calendar their lives to be able to harvest and hunt the animals and, and, har- and the plants. So I started off in chronobiology or biological clocks. I was interested in animals. I was not interested in humanity and, um, Joseph Carroll's, Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey or Carl Jung or ancient archaeology, any of these sort of things. I was interested in how animals um find their way in time and space. I live in the Pacific Northwest of the United States where you have salmon. And my interest at that time was, well, salmon run earlier or later from one year to the next, and no one actually get figured out how that works. And I explored the concept and I came up with a timing mechanism that you could I could tell you the events of the salmon from spawning to in migration into the river within a day or two. Whereas previously the it was with a month or two. Um, and, I, and then I I looked back into the Native American calendars and their traditions. I found that in fact they had the same um, traditions because Native Americans couldn't show up on the river and hope the salmon would be there. Otherwise, there was no food or very limited food. And so they had calendars and they also had myths and they had lore and they had art that explored and expressed how they would live in among the animals. And it it had these biological. Concepts of the plants and animals, and I gave presentations to the tribal councils in the Pacific Northwest. So these are the Umatilla, the Nez Perce, the Warm Springs, and the Yakima, and so these are these are seasoned Indian politicians and spiritual leaders. And I gave the presentations, and I came to a point in time where I showed that it, how the timing worked. There was there were time to light and dark cycles of both the sun and the moon, and it was in their own calendars. And these Native American men and women in their you know 60s, 70s, they cried because they realized they had it all along. And I gave a presentation to a uh, 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 power industry group. So these are the people who run the dams and they're they're um, professional managers. And at the end of one of those presentations, the lead person said to me, "The Indians had it all along." And someone said to me, you need to look further back in time. And I looked back to, to see if these, if these rhythms, if this knowledge was in um, our myth and our lore and our art from deeper point. And I went back and looked at the caves of France, especially at the Skull Cave 17,000 years ago in the Dorgon region. And in fact, the nomenclature around the animals and the seasonality of the animals was exactly what it was. As is the Native American calendars, as is the biological count, the biological rhythms of the, of the animals, because the animals haven't changed. Um, and our observation of the animals haven't changed. We're just using a different calendar today than Native American Jews and people using the Paleolithic. And that was about 13 years ago. And I said, I was ahead of my time both on the biological point, um, as well as the archaeology. And I give presentations to mostly biological circles and, um, academic conferences and things like that, and um, universities. And I put it on the shelf for 10 years, and I came back, and I went down the same road of biological clocks, rhythms of nature, chronobiology, endocrinology, that sort of stuff, and I saw something. I saw animals on a panel that shouldn't have been there, and those animals were in a Spanish cave, and the animals were of Africa. And that changed the whole thing. Because when we had a story of people that had traveled from Spain to Africa and back again 34, thousand years ago it completely changed the way we saw the world and ultimately found that, that the first animal was a elephant and ultimately we found giraffes and other, other African animals and we found people and we found people embedded in an image as well as these these animals and many millions of people had seen these images in the popular popular and and popular science and scientific media, and they hadn't seen these these animals embedded in the in the background. And they were struck on these red discs that um kind of draw our attention as a sort of a um to hide to hide what was behind them. And so it set off in a different direction of book, is why don't we see these things? Why don't we see the elephant in the room? It was this a psych a psychology test? And what can we learn about ourselves By seeing this perspective or multiple perspectives, and we also changed the concept of these were not knuckle-dragging cavemen, and you know they were just figured out how to make fire and were scratching a few images on the wall. The ancients in the Mediterranean, the Greeks, the Romans, the Phoenicians, the Babylonians, and people in the the Great Sahara region had been to these caves because we can see the exact images that they borrowed from them, and we can see the lore and the mythology that they brought forth that we still carry with us today. And so it was. Like a, a, a standstill in how we have to see the world. We can't, everything we've read in a history book that predates everything about the ancient Greeks and where they got the information, those, the Romans and Babylonians and so forth. And everything we think of Paleolithic man prior to 12,000 years ago is now completely rewritten. There's a whole new version of history out there now. And it's fascinating. And it's not my, ver- you know, I'd love to take credit for this, but it really isn't mine. Because the Greeks and the Romans, Phoenicians, Babylonians, and so forth, they were telling these stories. We just didn't understand. We we just thought there were myths and there are things that beyond the imagination. But they're really telling us stories about their observations of what they found in these caves and the images. And they tell us about incredible stories that we still repeat today. We put on new costumes. We have new sets but the stories are still the same and the stories about our own psychology or our own being well something you said there about the uh, history being rewritten
0: human history reminded me of uh, Graham Hancock I'm sure you're aware of um his work uh he often likes to tweet when he has an update or he finds a story that interests him and he often as a pretext he says stuff keeps getting older and mm-hmm. uh, that's kind of what we're finding as you say i mean even something like uh, gobekli tepe in turkey completely upends the history that i learned in school in terms of uh, you know ancient egypt and what have you it, the chronology the timelines of these things and, and it keeps getting pushed further and further back one thing i want to ask you about is you touched upon this in a presentation uh, one of your presentations that i saw and that was where did your personal interest in this come from i know you told the story about your first book and how that developed but As I understand it, your professional life isn't directly related to
1: this. It's something you've picked up on in your sort of in your own time, as it were. Exactly. So I'm in the business world and how it came about was I was always a naturalist. You know, I was a kid. I collected insects and I had a so-called bug collection. Um, I remember one time I had, I was in Florida and I found this three-horned beetle and I put it in a a paper bag under the seat in the car. And of course the, it got it. They'll use the horns to break open the back. <laughs> okay, and in the middle, in the nighttime as we're driving, the family, the the beetles flying around, and my sisters are screaming. Um, and so I grew up as a, I grew up in a, as sort of a naturalist. I hunted and I actually fished when I was young, and I hunted later in life. I moved out to Oregon and I spent a lot of time in the woods and I spent a lot of time among Native Americans. Um, and that's a when you spent that's everybody who spends time with Native Americans changes their worldview. And it's pivotal because Native Americans don't think with their head. They think with their hearts. Native Americans don't look to a book for the answer. Native Americans spend weeks out in, out in the, in what we would call the wild, but the natural world. I, I encountered one Native American who is, um, we'll call him a true shaman because he can count his lineage back, you know, 150, 200 years. And this, this person, um knew the night sky like any any professional astronomer except for one difference is that when he would go out every morning early in the morning before the, su- the sun rose he'd go out and look at the stars and based on what stars appeared on the horizon for the night before or the helical rising he would then have a start timing to some sort of event or some sort of ceremony he had some sort of story that related to that star I showed him a, a, a star wheel, which you can spin around the year. You can see every, every day which stars arise. He had no concept of that. So he, he had no concept that those stars were below the horizon in his religion, which he believed that had gone back for hundreds of years as far as he could tell. And he can, he can name off the people. They, the great Almighty, the great mystery was giving him those stars. And was, the stars were a message. And then in his religion, someone had to, the shaman was out there pre-dawn to look for the messages from the great almighty. And so when you, when you listen to a person like that and you compare that to our, our world today or what we think of today in science, it changes where we came from. Cause it puts us back into this Paleolithic mind that is still our own. It puts us into this concept that there was a, these are people that feel with their hearts, um, and they sense with their stomachs. You know, they they talk, they listen to the wind and the mountains are spirits, and the clouds are are real. You know, if there's a horse in the cloud. It's really a horse in that cloud. And so there, were, that's an animist mind. And then that animist mind predates everything that we can think of in modern times among Western civilization. But it is the mind that we come from. It's the mind before shamanism. Shamanism is a is a branch of animism. It's the mind long before the mind long before Christianity and Islam and the other Judaic religions. It's a mind that goes back to our very root. It's and Native Americans are animists such that people in Paleolithic times in the, the Great Ice Age caves of Europe tens of thousands of years ago were all animists, and so Native Americans keep keep that same tradition. Um, and so we can look at the native americans and learn about ourselves from our distant past and we can also start putting together the pieces of our history and there's really there's nothing that was actually lost it's still in us it's not just within the american native american traditions but it's in psychological elements archetypal symbols that we still carry us through in myth and lore um and we think of um you know we we think we're we're above and beyond the animals, but we still relate to each other as animals. We might say someone is fast as a cheetah, as strong as an ox, the um, wise as an, adult, an owl, or the person as a bull in a china shop. And that is exactly how Native Americans told their stories, and that's exactly how the images are connected to the Pelothic, in the Palatric Caves to human beings that tell these same sort of stories, that, that we are not above the animals. We are one with the animals, and we can learn from them. And so it takes us back to who we are. so i'm I've come out as sort of the the alternative to the alternative among history, both from the mainstream and the so-called fringe um, groups. I'm kind of I'm out there among I mean Native Americans get it i'm I'm on a new a different path than the world for at the moment.
0: Well, I think that uh, for better or worse, um, our technology, for example, over the centuries and millennia, has advanced much, much quicker. Then we have evolved. Some people would say that we barely evolved at all since the sort of time periods that you're talking about. And this is one of the things that makes us so remarkable is this technological advance, but it's also one of the things that causes us difficulties as we kind of struggle with the tension between the, the world that we live in now and our sort of innate selves and our the relationship that we've lost w- with nature and, and the, the rest of the world around us, but whatever the origins of humanity are, it seems that we've always been trying to make sense of the world around us. I'm not sure when, if we'll ever be able to say when we started to go beyond observations, for example, of, of, of nature, of the plants and animals that we cohabited with, and this movements of the stars and the sun and the moon, when we went beyond just using that as ways to understand the environment so we could survive, and when it started to become something more than that to us, it started to, you know, these symbols and concepts and myths and characters started to make our lives richer and become more than just survival, possibly predates language.
1: So the, you're right, we have better toys today, without any question. But, you know, we're we're Batman with really cool toys. But the bat is still within us, that animus that we can't escape from. Now, going back to the question of, language and evolution and so on. And I have a different chronology in the book. And how I, I do, I go back to chimpanzees. Chimpanzees naturally have gestures um, in the wild, as well as bonobos. 30 to 40 gestures, they communicate within their own troop. Um, there was a chimpanzee called Washo who learned more than 300 gestures in American Sign Language and went to teach her own um, adopted son American uh, American Sign Language. So, I think that there was we start before we had language we had gestures, and the gestures started with fundamentally body gestures then moved to some sort of hand sign language and we probably had sign language so if we had it with chimpanzees you can you can go through all the people all the all the homos throughout time that had some sort of some sort of gesture language and that and with a gesture language, you can then Communicate with people who don't actually understand your language, as long as you have common gestures. And around the world, we, we do have structured sign languages, but there's actually similar gestures, you know, to say hello, to eat, to say goodbye, to cry, and so forth. And so we, there's common gestures. And I believe that early gestures on were actually of um, animals. And so, in fact, my book, I show about 20 gestures that are described, I propose to describe the, like, the caves that, that describe the animals, but also describe the biological event of the animals, which is very important. So Native Americans, for example, they didn't say, I'm going to meet you tomorrow. They said, I will meet you when the, the foals drop from the mares or the, when, at the time to hunt the bison. Okay. And so I believe that Paleothic Caves there's there's thousands of these these hand stencils positive and negative and i believe most of them are actually hand gestures and i'm not the first one to propose that that andre le a french um mm, he was an anthropologist we'll say he he te- he looked at the relationship between the same type he, he sequenced the number of gestures the similar types and and he, in some caves and he, and he sequenced the number of the appearance of animals such as bison and, and, and horses and up in, in caves. and he showed that the most number of the, he showed the most number of gestures equals what' called type A, and he said this list likely equals the most number of animals, which would be type A among either the part of Spain, which be the bison or the mare or the horse. And so this concept of gesturing that these, these hand stencils are gestures predates my work. But what I'm saying though it that the gestures are not just of uh, describing the the physical form of the animal so the antlers up for let's say a deer or uh the horns forward for a bison and of course no horns for a horse therefore your hand would actually be down but the they actually describe biological events and there's in these caves they actually they show tabulations of so it looks at like nomenclature under these hand stencils and under animals. And that goes back to my biological clockwork and chronobiology and the, and the calendars that the, a lot of these images are actually calendars. They didn't show a, 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 a pregnant mare next to a mare that's not pregnant. If there's a panel of a bunch of pregnant mare with, with mares, they're all pregnant or they're, or they're not. Or there'll be a, another area where the foals will be running. Um, if there's a panel where there's a there's a there's a, a, st- a deer stag with antlers, then that animal's next door would be a megaloceros with antlers. It's not a megaloceros that has sh- shed its antlers or t- a spring or early summer megaloceros. And so th- all, these panels are all time sequenced, and they're telling a story of – where that person is in that time and place so they pro- they these these artists probably went to many caves and for each place that, that they hunted and gathered they had the animals that were depicted in that world and each place they had a story about them and the stories told them how they were supposed to interact with the plants with the plants and the animals so that they gave them respect and that's very that's very similar to how the native americans did it native americans before the native americans arrived the animals interacted and talked with each other. Native Americans arrive, there's a mix between the two, and ultimately, ultimately they don't speak with the animals, but they give reverence to the animals so that they kill an elk, they they thank the elk for giving itself to Native Americans. And so, I believe that's an animist um, mind, and I believe these cave artists were very similar. Because there's a very interesting thing they have in this gallery of discs, which is one of the main images I use in the book is most of the animals depicted are females, and most of the animals are accompanied by a juvenile of the same species. And in and in every case that we have yeah, the, the mother and the juvenile, the mother is protecting the juvenile. And so we have an Iberian lynx, and the, the kitten pushes against its its chin. We have a bunch of cheetahs, and the mother is hiding them in an outcrop. We have a, a giraffe, uh, an African giraffe, and she uses her molten pattern neck to hide the the juvenile whose whose head comes just in and above her chin and so we're talking we're talking about people that didn't see animals as wild animals they saw saw them as fellow beings beings that they could actually learn from as we could learn f- from the uh, the other animals in our world today and that's of course the mission of Jane Goodall that by being better to animals the other animal beings it makes us better um Humans ourselves and I believe that's m- one of the many messages that are given in these in these palliative caves and it's a um, It's it's not a new way of seeing the world It's a very old way of seeing the world that people are some or we're now coming back into it in our modern time
0: Yes, we'll, we'll talk about implications and Possibilities of what you know where we find ourselves now and in, in the future in relation to all of this um, in due course just to put something directly to you about the gallery of discs you were referring to, again, your book before Orion, bases itself around to quite a great extent. I think this is the uh, El Castillo cave, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that Correct. correctly, Correct. In, in Spain. A couple of points. The interpretations of the cave art there, are they your own personal interpretations? Second, the shapes, the, the characters and the figures, the animals that emerge from the rock there, are they, as in some cases, they're, they just happen to be part of the rock formations, but people have envisioned these creatures and characters in there, or is there any degree of carving or manipulation going on there? And thirdly, if you don't mind me putting three questions in one. Sure. Why was that particular cave and the story that you see told there so particularly important?
1: Absolutely important. Okay. That's a few big questions. Um, so first one is technique. We'll start there, and this is a limestone limestone panel. And I I have some other panels in the book. The 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 Gorms etching is one of them, and there's other ones that I don't have in the book because I couldn't get the rights to these images. But they're very similar in in their theme and the technique. So this is a limestone panel, and what the artist did was he first took off the organic matter and the mineral matter, but he left some of the some of the mineral matter there to create parts of the body of these animals and and humans. And then he puts, he uses red discs to create other parts of the bodies. And then he, he takes, um, he engraves in the limestone. So limestone is about as hard as your fingernail. He engraves lines within the the limestone in the same way that you would make lines along a beach. You, you take a stick and kind of make lines. And if you, if you, you could on the beach, if you drew lines in the sand, you could draw overlapping characters on each other. And perhaps the, um, you could draw a seal on the beach with, the, with in the sand, and you could use that same fin for a dolphin as a concept, right? Because the seal, they're similar-looking fins. Okay, you could take the same, you could take the eyes of the seal, and you could make that the the the, the eyes of a whale. Okay, uh, just moving from a different direction. And so, what the Paleolithic artists did was they overlapped images on top of each other through both using natural. Um, organic um, uh, mineral material, whether they left it or they took it away, by using natural um, radiuses or different, uh, irregularities in the rock surface, and then by doing engraving in the limestone as well as doing these red discs and, white, and black discs over them. Um, did they actually... Did they do chiseling? I don't know, but limestone really isn't that hard. And so you could chisel out limestone and use sand to rough, to smooth it over. And, you know, you wouldn't really see very much. And this artist is brilliant. So how, so how did the, so that's the fundamental technique of how this was done. So are these my interpretations? The answer is 90% yes. Okay. Because I had, I had an accomplice. So when I first started working on this, I saw this huge panel with red discs running across at about 90 or so, and I started counting the red discs just like everybody else. And then I the reasoned to myself that, well, this is a big panel. It's mostly white. Maybe there's something else hidden there. And the most common animal in Paleolithic art in that part of, of, of Europe was the horse and typically a pregnant mare. So I started looking for a pregnant mare. Well, I didn't find a pregnant mare until almost three years later, but what I did find was an elephant real fast. Um, And I found the head of a lion and a a lion and a lioness who's licking or nuzzling up to to the lion. And I reached out to someone from my distant past. We'll call him an accomplice. His name is George Schaller. And George Schaller is the, considered the world's foremost wildlife biologist. He's the mentor of Jane Goodall and anybody you could possibly imagine from that time period. And he's still, he's in his mid eighties. He's a big cat guy. He's wrote a bunch of books, but he doesn't publish very much because he's out saving big cats. He doesn't care. He's not an eagle person. He's about saving the animals. That's a stick. Um, and he's uh, I met George in my early 20s. When I was living in China and he doesn't remember me. And I it was through a common friend. I reached out to George and I said, hey, you know, I've got these images. Can you help me to identify uh, what they are or not? And he, we back and forth dialogue and we, we resolved that, uh, we couldn't determine if the elephant was in fact an African elephant or not. We couldn't determine if the, the lions were African or, African lions or not. But we ultimately found 50 or 60 other animals and we found a giraffe and some other African, distinctly African animals. And we just wanted, we, we, we learned that one end of the panel has all African animals. The other end of the panel has European animals. And in the middle of it is a body of water that has a seal, a dolphin, um, a, a crab, and, um, there's probably some other aquatic marine animals in there too. And so we, so isn't, wasn't my interpretation. The answer is I was the first one to dive into it and start pulling them out. And what George didn't do, he never said, he never told me, you know, there's a mongoose over there. Okay. He never did that. But if I brought him a mongoose, we would taxonomically dissect it to see if it was a mongoose or not. And there were some images that we described as like shamanic um, um, overlap between human and an animal that we just said we, we said this isn't an animal this is something within the within the imagination of man. But we did come we did went through all these animals and it was re- really fun working with George because um, I approached him like he's a scientist, okay? And I'm asking him about chronobiology stuff because I was just in, in, in behavior. And figure out the taxonomic details to make sure we had these were the right, the right animals, because the artist is very distinct in how he does things. And George would come back to me, because he, he was way beyond that. He said, okay, oh, yeah, of course it's the mongoose. But he would say, you know, that it was such a touching moment or empathetic moment between, between the, 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 the lynx kitten who's pushing us up against the ruffer rougher the mother. And he had seen such scenes among lions in Africa, but he hadn't seen them among lynx. And he – he, so the – and then I said, well, how do we know what, what kind of lynx it is? We saw, and, he, and then he said, okay, well, it's obvious because the, the rough is much longer than a Eurasian lynx. And a, an African lynx, a caracal, basically has no hair, very little hair. Um But it was obviously a lynx because of the tuft that comes off the top of its ear. So I learned a lot about anatomy of animals in this process. And then George would also say – we would talk about the – because he also was an artist. and He was drawing animals for his books. And how he was partly determining the taxonomic details was he already knew that the 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 ear of a lion was directly behind the eye, one of the one of the examples he had. And so the so we went through this and probably a year and a half, two years. And I also I dedicated the book to George, and not specifically for the work he did on the book, but the work he's done for animal uh, conservation in over his life. And it was fitting, and um, I don't really think he wanted to be dedi- the book dedicated him to that per se. But he, de- you know, he was the recognition that he gave that he stood forward as you know fairly prominent, I mean, prominent scientist in the world. And he, to me, who has, I'm not in this world, in his world, but we went back and forth, and we um, together we we decided we came to conclusions of what what wasn't and what what was and what wasn't. And that's how that came to be as a a joint project and i you know i I thank him um because there were some animals the, there's a Barbary ape for example, and I recognized it was some sort of ape i just couldn't for George was because of the wide rump it's uh, it's the only ape that has such a wide rump big rump and um there were some other characteristics he had as well and I have this image from gibraltar um from the rock Gibraltar, of a Barbary ape. That its arms and legs are exactly positioned as the one in the cave um, in Spain, and so he, there are a lot of there was a lot of back and forth that um, we both learned from each other, and he, he learned from these images. And at the point that he was working on it, none of the animals that we had seen were extinct. So we hadn't we hadn't identified animals that have since become extinct. But after In in more recent times, the last last five maybe eight months ago, I came across a great auk, which is a bird, something like a penguin, but it's not a penguin. And it is now extinct. So that so going back thirty four thousand years ago, we have preserved all the animals that we had back then, they just might not be in the same places. So there's there's a bear, there's bears in this image in Africa, but there's no longer bears. In, in Western North Africa. So we have not... Our world has changed, but it hasn't changed that much, and we still have a great deal to learn from the Paleolithic artists as well as the animals, the empathy of, of the animals that they depicted.
0: Um, I know you've covered dimension of the, the third question there, but why was that particular... Why do you feel that particular story um, in itself uh, depicted in that cave, you know, that journey from Spain to Africa and back... Is so important, or is it just an example, totemic example of similar things that
1: are elsewhere? So, I believe that this was the first hero's journey. That hero's journey, the monomyth of Joseph Campbell, um, I believe that is told throughout the world. And that the, because, well, so they were hero's journeys, I should say, but I we, this was the core monomyth that we get. Everybody around the world has gotten their hero's journey from, their story about the the individual that leaves their home and goes away, answers the call, faces danger, and ultimately faces the greatest danger or the monster, which is within, and they face that danger, that monster, have a change of attitude, and return home to tell their story of the journey. Um, and we of course tell that through every, just about every major movie has that embedded in it. It's either in major book. It's either the hero goes on a journey or the stranger enters the room. The, so why is this? Why is that so important? Well, what we have is where we're going back into the work of young, which of course, Joseph Campbell is a huge fan of young and much of many of Joseph Campbell's quotes, or he says things where actually he was just quoting young and people gave Joseph Campbell credit for it, which is okay. Um, and so Joseph Young talked about a collective unconscious. He said that there are symbols, there are archetypes that are within within us, and that we we can't escape from those, those those symbols and those archetypes. And we somehow carry them within us. And people around the world have these same symbols: the old and the young, the, the mother and, and the child, the teacher and the apprentice, the bully and the the um, the distressed. Or the, you know, the damsel in distress, the hero who overcomes the bully to save the damsel in distress, told all around the world. And so Joseph, and Jung said that these, these symbols and these archetypes are somehow carried within us. And so, and, and when Jung was talking about that, and when Joseph Campbell was talking about that, they were really going back to Gilgamesh, They epic Gilgamesh from 4,500 years ago in the, um, unearthed in the deserts, um, the, the uh, Middle Eastern deserts. And that is the oldest written story that we have. And so psychology and storytelling and literature and all these sort of things go back to Gilgamesh. And we look at Gilgamesh and we say, well, you know, he's finally got the same issues that we have today. Therefore, you know, we were, we were just as troubled them as we are now. So man hasn't evolved in, intellectually or psychologically hasn't evolved in 4,500 years. But now what we do, we've gone back I've pushed this back 30,000 years. And we can see that not only that we're telling the same stories, we, the ancients in the Mediterranean lifted these stories from the caves, the, ca- the specific characters, and they brought it into their own, which then became ours. And so we intellectually, psychologically, we haven't changed in at least 34,000 years. There has been no evolution in the mind of man. So yes, we have better toys. We can fly in airplanes. And, you know, I've got a Samsung, I've got a, you know, Droid right here and we're doing Skype communications. So these are just better toys and, you know, and better toys, you know, math and math that we score better in the SATs and so forth. Again, they're toys. Our minds are not smarter because we have higher level math because and we don't have any greater artistic ability because we we have computer um, animation. The level of art in this gallery of discs and some of the other images I show in the book is far beyond anything we have in our modern time. We have absolutely nothing. Picasso visited the cave of Altamira. He was brought in to, to, to the test or answer the question of whether it was a fraud. Because in about, about 1900, when they cave of Altamira in the same part of Spain as El Castillo was uncovered, they said, well, the caveman couldn't have done this because the art is just too good. And Picasso looked at the image and he said, none of us could have done anything like this. This is not a fraud. Picasso borrowed two images from Altamira. Um, they're they're, they're, they're um, irregularities in the rock that have charcoal over them that give the appearance of the head of horses. He took those and he put them into his Les Demoiselles d'Avignon 1907 image painting, which is the first cubism work. It is the first modern art. And he inserted them over the faces of two women, which became modern art. So Picasso's modern art comes from the Pelithic record from the cave of Altamira directly. Picasso then went to borrow other images from Grote de Père non Père. And And um, the central horse in Guernica comes from there. And he, he borrows many images from the Pelithic, Modern art and using metaphor as symbolism and these animus characters that we, he carried forth. Is a Paleolithic form. It is not modern art. We have invented, in in Picasso's own words, I quote him now: "We have invented nothing." And so it tells us that, you know, people ask the question: How can we learn? How can we know what our future is unless we know what our past was? Well, our past 34,000 years ago is no different from today, other than that we have better toys. And if it was no different 34,000 years ago, it probably wasn't 34,000 years ago that before that, or 200 years, 200 years, 100,000 years before that, that we, we have had no significant change in our psychology, in our intellectual development, in other than that we've done a better job of over consuming and the resources, the natural resources, sources of the world and pollution and so forth. But so we can learn about the, we can learn about a great deal about ourselves in the same way that people have looked, historically looked back to Gilgamesh as this story, this early story that tells us we're basically, you know, nutty now as we were then. We can go back 34,000 years ago and we can see these stories that are still within us and these images that we still carry forth that are oh, that were apparent throughout our worlds and Cubism art. Which is uh, overlapping images, characters are on top of each other. Go to any movie theater, you will see that as the, the 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 um you know you have the hero you know holding you know Luke Skywalker holds a lightsaber and the damsel in distress is lower down next to him, and of course Darth Vader or whatever the villain is will be superimposed behind him. That is a pelitic art form that Picasso borrowed from the actual images and so we we you know to the words of picasso we've invented nothing it's ironic that many of us
0: consider for example cave paintings rock art the symbols in there the information contained therein the stories uh later transmitted in signs or in language spoken or written to be Basically, just ways of encoding information about the world, how to interpret it, how to understand it, what to do, what not to do. But that's something that we have no longer have any need for. You know, we've got much better methods of information, storage and transmission. And yet, as you say, and you're using the lens of popular culture, we see these archetypal journeys of transformation and quests all over the place, you know, like fantasy uh, you know sword and sorcery that's all what is that but this same type of journey of transformation you know a quest for something or other like lord of the rings for example and these heroic figures you mentioned star wars uh, which is basically a fairy tale and uh, these archetypal images and characters that recur again and again and we've told ourselves that they're just myths and legends that's all very interesting of the past however but far back we go but we have no need of them today but in a world that we are told is essentially Meaningless and pointless. These are the things that kind of resonate with us
1: Absolutely, and it was um, so George Lucas studied Joseph Campbell, and they, they work together in part writing the script and they these These we still use the same um, We still use the same metaphors and we carry we we tell we transmit more let's say questions of morality through our own stories and our movies. I remember that when George Bush Jr. was president, and he said, "You, you regarding Iraq, Iraq, you're either with us or against us." Um, and well, in the same about the same time, a Star Wars movie came out, and Yoda it's relating to a Sith, and uh, Yoda said, "Only a Sith thinks in black and white." And, uh, so, and the media came out, of course, that was the, the, his, um, his nod to the absurdity of George Bush Jr., um, which is, that's what absurdity is sort of commonplace in the United States in American politics today. Um, but the, so we still, we still portray morality, portray, portray these stories through myth. And we have, myth is really important. And it's, it it's an undercurrent with our society. And we, Myths are beliefs, and myths are beliefs in something that we be- that we believe happened sometime in the distant past. So A- Abrahamic religions um, have had, separated many times throughout the last um, 4,000 years, and we've had, um, of course, splits in Judaism, tr- splits in Christianity, s- splits in Islam. The arguments with all those sects of all those religions are differences in their interpretation of the myths, Okay. And so in the you're you're from an Anglican background, and the difference between the Anglican myth and the Roman Catholic myth is that the Roman Catholic myth is that the Pope the Pope speaks to and for a God, or something something along those lines. Um, whereas in the Anglican tradition it was the there it was without fundamentally without a Pope, therefore you were not a papist. And, of course, it was the king of England, um, it was King Henry VIII, um, that decided that he wanted to not sp- have um, Rome speak for him, or the Pope in Rome, because he wanted to do things his way. So he created his own myth. There was a split in the religion. And we find these wars throughout the world of similar religions or that have split the myth, or different religions that are fighting over completely different myths. So I, I would argue that, um, there's many people in, in the Western world or Christians who believe that we are fighting a crusade in the Middle East. And for sure, there's a huge population in the Middle East that believes the the incursion from the Western powers is truly a crusade. So we're going, we're fighting over myths and common belief systems that are not apparent among the other animals. I bet you, you can't say to an elephant, I'm going to give you a thousand, I'll give you um, one peanut today, or a thousand peanuts tomorrow, if you, if you'll believe, if you believe in an afterlife. And the elephant pe- the elephant's just gonna take that one peanut, okay? Um, so, we, we appear to be the only being among the animals that have this concept of myth and belief systems. And through this common belief in myth, it tears us apart, but it also brings us together. And in this paleolithic image, we have a common myth from at least 34,000 years ago, to Lescaut 17,000 years ago, that it was uninterrupted in the Paleolithic cave art. And then it was at least picked up again among the ancients, the Greeks, the Romans, and so forth. And we've had it since, so let's say, um, say thir- three, th- actually Egyptians as well. So we'll say 4,000 years among the Egyptians. So we've had it from 4,000 years ago today. And it's these, these symbols and these archetypes, these myths that we can relate to. And they give us a common identity that we can move forth without battling with each other. We can trust our neighbors because we have a common belief. In this we just went through an election season here in the United States and you could you know people's lawns you can see if they were who they were for and against. And we 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 had we made opinions about, you know, my neighbor is a freaking idiot because he believes in that candidate and the beliefs of that candidate. So, and, and of course the beliefs of that candidate are a completely different myth. Um the the myth Bernie Sanders has a completely different myth about, um, democracy than does the Koch brothers, um, the, the, who are industrialists, major industrialists in the United States, who are fossil, made their money on fossil fuels. And so, but is, but we still have this common belief that there is a democracy. And then if we continue to vote and exercise our freedoms, we will, have a more pure democracy and will, will remain intact. If one side comes to power and, and does not let the other side in for changes the rules, we would have another revolution. And it's all about myth. And these myths go back to a very distant time of this hero that goes on this journey that we find the Paleothic Caves of Europe. And he travels from Europe, from Iberian Peninsula across the Strait of Gibraltar to Africa and back again. And not and not only have these animals that we see are on ter- terrain on terrestrial land, they are. Their reflection is in the night sky, in the stars and the constellations above them. And so, on one end of the panel, we have this this man with a mask who is Hercules. On the other end, we have the we have the South, we have Orion. Of course, Hercules the North and, and his constellations and Orion is to the South. And next to that man with the with the mask, we have um, a. a uh, eagle, which is a gear. We have a horse, which is, um, Pegasus. We have, um, the, a dolphin, which is P- Pisces. We have a seal, which is Cetus. And then we come, we keep going and we find Orion. And above Orion, we have, um, the, we have, um, the, um, we have the lions, which is Leo. We have Ursa Major, the bears. We have the crocodile, which is Draco. And we have a, the great, now extinct great auk, which is, um, Cygnus, the constellations. And so the, uh, as above, so below. In the Hermetic tradition, that's where it comes from, and we still carry those same beliefs with us. That there is a there is a an afterlife in the stars, and that there's a great Almighty who lives on the you know in the in the in the beyond, and that we you know most of us most people who do believe that there's an afterlife don't believe it's going to be you know buried eat, eat my gra- worms in the ground. They believe that they're going to transcend to another dimension beyond our current. Uh, terrestrial world, and that comes from the same image. So we're carrying the same myths, th- that same identities that are at least 34,000 years ago with us. Our psychology hasn't changed, and somehow we're wired for this. And that's really important because if we're wired for this, it won't change going forward in our own times or in the times of our children or great children I believe in 5,000 years and 10,000 years people can be having these same discussions because now that the images have been resurfaced and they'll be asking you know who are we where do we come from and what does it mean where do we go forward from this time and place
0: that concludes part one of our interview be sure to tune in next week for part two if you enjoyed the show check out the website which is legalizefreedom.com. that's legalize-freedom.com where you'll find an archive of programs offering alternative views on a wide range of topics, including politics and economics, energy and environment, culture, spirituality, history, and the nature of reality. Until next time, I'm Greg Moffat, and you've been listening to LegalizeFreedom.com.